the National Archives podcast series by hook and by crook and a good thrashing. Sources for tracing agricultural labourers, presented by Mark Pearsall. Right, good afternoon ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mark Pearsall, I'm Principal Record Specialist for Family History at the National Archives. It's a rather large subject area and basically this afternoon I'm going to talk about resources for tracing agricultural labourers and working families in parishes. Um, it's very much um, on the agricultural and rural side. I'm not going to be covering sort of labourers in towns and cities. Um, and it's mainly covering the earlier period, the 18th century and 19th century, rather than um, the later 19th century or 20th century. And it's very much um, suggesting where you should look um, to find records that may contain details of working people and, uh, and labouring people um, in the rural economy. So to start off with, um, a few definitions that you might come across amongst records. Husbandmen, uh, farm servants and labourers. Um, to start off with, husbandman is a term that's very much archaic by the sort of end of the 18th century and certainly by the 19th century. Um, but originally husbandmen, men engaged in husbandry and agriculture, um, ranked below yeomen in the hierarchy. Um, normally a husbandman had some land. Um, he had strips in the open fields and certain rights on the common, commons and wastes of a manor. He's a manorial tenant and a smallholder, and he usually holds his land by customary tenure, which could be copyhold or lifehold tenure, and he would have a copy of the court roll saying what his holding uh, actually contained. But by the end of the 18th century, 19th century, this term is very much sort of archaic. It's being replaced by labourer, but it doesn't mean the type of labourer that we tend to think of for the 19th century. By the end of the 19th century, you've got enclosure, where it hasn't happened piecemeal in the 17th and early 18th centuries. By the end of the 18th century and the 19th century, you've got enclosure by Act of Parliament. And many of these smallholders are being thrown off their land or losing their land because they can't afford um, to pay for the fencing of the the fields that are being uh, enclosed. So many husbandmen are becoming, by the end of the 18th century, landless labourers without any land of their own. Um, you will find, though, that the, you'll come across the term labourer for men that were basically, um, did have a holding of their own. They're not what we think of as agricultural labourers without any land. And you can find examples for example, in the Prerogative Court of Canterbury Wills, if you do a search under the term labourer, you can find over 1,200 wills in the PCC before 1858 of so-called labourers. But in most cases, these are men that are, um, do have property and they have money to bequeath. And you can find a man described in his will as a labourer leaving bequests of £40, £50, £100. So they're not the type of labourer, the landless labourer, that is working for the tenant farmers. Um, it's more of a man that's earning his living by manual work. He's not a gentleman or he, he might be a sort of 
lower status yeoman, or he's a husbandman with a cottage and a plot of land, and he's farming that. Um, and he's described as a labourer rather than as a husbandman. Uh, he's not the agricultural labourer that you think of in the 19th century. Now, the other term that you can come across are farm servants. Now, farm servants are contracted employees of a farmer, a tenant farmer, usually hired on a yearly basis for 12 months with full-time employment. It's a contract that they are engaged by the farmer at the hiring fair, the annual hiring fair in a market town. And there's basically two types of farm servant. The indoor or household farm servant, which is akin to the modern or the domestic servant. Um, so they're usually women employed in the farmhouse as servants, or they might be employed in the dairy, if it's a dairy farm, or on, on the farm or in the farm buildings, almost as part of the household, so like a domestic servant rather than a farm worker that we would normally think of. But there are also outdoor farm servants who actually work with the livestock and in the fields. So men, usually men, are specifically engaged for specific tasks on a farm as a dairyman or a cowman, a ploughman, a carter. And they're engaged for that specific task for a 12-month period. And they take a shilling and they're formally employed. It's a binding contract for 12 months. So those are the farm servants that have specific tasks, either within the household or on the farm, but with their specific duties defined by a contract. Then you get the labourers that we would think of as agricultural labourers. You can get some labourers that will be engaged permanently as farm servants, but the majority are actually day labourers, hired by the day or at a daily rate. So they may be hired for a week or a fortnight, but they're paid at a daily rate to perform specific jobs at specific times of the year, and they're hired and employed while the farmer needs them, and then their work is terminated. So the work's not permanent for many labourers, and it's usually seasonal. Um, the most common example being the need for extra labourers at harvest time. But you can also find the need for extra labourers in the autumn after the harvest to help with thrashing um, the wheat or the barley, um, or in the winter months for drainage and digging drainage ditches. So men could be hired on a daily basis. And you will come across this term in census records, day labourer. And these are labourers employed on a daily basis on farms. Records of farm servants and those labourers that are hired to do specific tasks, you can find sometimes records of those from the hiring fairs. These are normally held in market towns, which are usually boroughs. They might not be incorporated municipal boroughs after 1835. They're usually much older boroughs, which may have been incorporated, but not necessarily. And records of hirings conducted at the annual hiring fairs can sometimes be found amongst the records of the corporation or the borough. And these will record details of the master and the, the, the employee engaged by them. And where they survive, these records will be Monk's Borough records, usually in the county record office. Now, the term agricultural labourer is basically a Victorian creation. It's a classification used by the census and the census enumerators. So before 1841, you'll rarely find, if ever, a mention of the term agricultural labourer. 
um, in the 18th century. It's usually going to be husbandman, farm servant, farm labourer or labourer. This slide shows basically a rough guide to the civil administration of a parish. Um, starting off at county level actually rather than parish level you have the commission of the peace for each shire or county made up of the justices of the peace who meet quarterly at quarter sessions and much of the business, much of the county business and parochial business that needs to be brought to the quarter sessions will be conducted before the justices of the peace and quarter sessions records are a rich source of information about local government down to parish level. Um, from the 1820s, from about 1824 onwards, you get uh, petty sessional divisions where justices will actually um, operate in a specific jurisdiction within the county or the shire um, and you get petty sessional records. Now unfortunately in the 19th century most petty sessional records don't survive. It's a matter of luck. Um, county to county, uh, what will survive in the county record office. 20th century petty sessional records are better, but for the early 19th century you're very lucky to find surviving petty sessional records. But usually, overseers of the poor with settlement disputes, surveyors of the highways uh, that need to uh, appear before the justices because the parish roads are falling to pieces uh, and are summoned by the justices um, will be heard at quarter sessions. And the parish constable will also make returns and deliver criminals for trial at the quarter sessions. So quarter sessions records are a rich source of information. At parish level um, you need to think in terms of the surviving records for the parish other than parish registers. So the records of the parish vestry or parish meeting. Um, so vestry minutes will often detail the business of the parish. Um, normally chaired by the parish priest, it will include the main parochial officers, so the church wardens will attend it, the overseers of the poor, the surveyor of the highways, and usually the parish constable, and they will make returns. The overseers will do an assessment for the parish rate, and that will be approved by the parish meeting or vestry, uh, and then it will be confirmed by the justices of the peace. Um, so the records of the parish, other than the parish registers, are where you need to look for the community living within the parish, and the poor often appear um, either amongst the records of the overseers of the poor or sometimes amongst the constables' records, although surviving constables' records are much rarer uh, by and large. Um, overseers' records should be pretty good and the records of the vestry, minutes of the vestry, should survive in most cases. But it is very much a matter of luck what has survived for a particular parish. One parish may be very rich in records, whereas the neighbouring parish, there may have been a fire at the church, there may have been um, something onto ward happened, somebody may have not looked after the records for a particular period, so there may be gaps in the records, or all the, all the various records before a certain date may no longer survive. So it is very much a matter of luck what has survived on a parish-by-parish -parish basis. 
Now, some of the most useful records for tracing working families and labouring families, particularly after enclosure, um, are the records of the poor law. And there are two types of records. There's the records of the old poor law from 1597 and 1601 to 1834, and then you get the new poor law system from 1834. So under the old poor law, Basically, from 1597 and 1601, you have the Acts for the Relief of the Poor, which create the basic poor law system, which is known as the Old Poor Law. Um, it's parish-based, with a poor rate set by the parish vestry or meeting, and collected by the annually appointed overseers of the poor. And they're responsible, the overseers, for drawing up property valuations within the parish and for setting the poor rate with the vestry. Um, it's agreed with the vestry, and then um, it has to be formally approved by the uh, uh, justices of the peace, the local justices of the peace. And then they're also then responsible for collecting the poor rates within the parish. They've got various duties within the parish, so that their records, the account books that they keep, are usually very detailed and cover information on working families, on the poor, um, on the old and the infirm, uh, and on orphans and widows. So amongst the duties that they perform, they can put the able-bodied poor to work. Um, they provide outdoor poor relief for those unable to work, for the old or the infirm. Um, they pay for pauper funerals and for the burial of strangers that might happen to die while travelling through the parish or staying at the local alehouse and die uh, away from home. Um, then they're responsible for the um, paying for the funeral. They also enforce the settlement laws from 1662 onwards and the examination of paupers and the removal of strangers that don't have a legal right of settlement within the parish, uh, remove them to their, uh, their, their adjudged parish of, of legal settlement. And parishes also provided poor houses, what we think of as a workhouse, but not the workhouses created after 1834 by the poor law unions. Under the early um, Tudor Acts, a parish could create a poor house, where under the Acts, the unemployed could be put to work, um, and the overseers could actually buy materials to, for the, for the uh, unemployed to actually work on, um, so they could put them to work. But this often wasn't enforced, um, by overseers, um, but poor houses were usually used for the old or the infirm and those incapable of working. And after 1834, many of these old poor houses were sort of closed down once the poor law unions um, had built uh, the new workhouses. Now, the sort of records that you can find that the overseers created are the rate books, although rate books only tend to survive in urban areas. Um, in boroughs and cities, but you do get assessments um, where all the parishioners, all the householders, uh, will be listed um, and the value of their property. You get some that go back um, to the late 16th or 17th century, but most will begin in the 18th century, sort of rate books and valuations. Um, and they give you details of the, uh, the value of the property, the assessment, and the details of the, of the ratepayer, who's not necessarily the owner, he's the householder uh, of the property. 
Um, but he might not be a freeholder, he could be a leaseholder or copyholder. Um, but he's rated and he will pay a certain amount based on the value of the property that he holds um, in poor rates every year. And the account books that the overseers keep detail all the expenditure that they provide to the community within the parish. So account books can survive from the late 17th century and through the 18th century to the 19th century. Um, and these include details of individuals, the names of those receiving poor relief payments, might include medical expenses, nursing fees for the sick and the elderly and the infirm, expenses if a midwife is needed to deliver children, maintenance of single mothers, also widows, um, upkeep of orphans, um, details of children boarded out if both parents have died, um, records of apprenticeships of orphans or pauper children. Um, these will usually be found in the overseer's records, but sometimes details of orphans and pauper children will also be discussed at the vestry meeting as well. So you need to use all the records, not just look at one particular type of record. You need to consult all the records in order to build up a complete picture because there may be more than one reference. There may be something in the overseer's accounts, something in the vestry minutes, something in the church warden's records as well, because usually these offices are held by a small number of men. In some parishes, each householder had the duty by house row every year to hold the office of overseer of the poor or hold the office of church warden or hold the office of surveyor. It varies slightly from parish to parish depending on the customs of that particular parish. Um, but you'll usually find that a man will be both a church warden one year and an overseer the next or the other way round. Um, and over the course of several years a man might be church warden for two or three years, he might be overseer of the poor for two or three years. Um, and often the records will have to be used in conjunction because things are recorded in both the records of the overseer and the church wardens and then also discussed at the vestry meetings as well. These are just a couple of examples of um, overseer's records. Um, they vary in quality, some are better kept than others. Sometimes the overseer is appointed because it's sometimes it's a parish duty. Um, the man, the householder whose turn it is to be overseer for this particular year might actually be illiterate, in which case he needs to pay somebody um, to help with his accounts and even to write up the accounts. And you can find examples of church wardens' accounts and overseers' accounts where there is a payment to a clerk, maybe the parish clerk, maybe the curate, if there's a curate, um, or somebody to actually write up the accounts for them and they will actually be a payment within the accounts for that writing up of the accounts. Um, but they do vary in style and quality. Some are nice and neatly kept. Others can be a hodgepodge and a mixture um, and jump around somewhat. Um, from left to right or right to left or from side to side. Um, some can be very difficult to decipher. Um, it just depends on the, um, the skill and dedication of the, uh, the particular person holding, holding office that particular year. These are examples of removal orders under the settlement um, laws from 1662. 
everybody had a legal parish of settlement. It was normally your parish of birth, but not necessarily. If you moved around and were hired and, uh, by farmers and were employed on a farm for a year, that would give you a right of settlement in that particular parish. Um, if you hold, held a paro parochial office within a parish, that would give you a right of settlement. Um, this is an example of a um, removal order for James and Anne Illett from Tainton to Swinbrook in Oxfordshire in 1808. James Illett was adjudged to actually have a legal right of settlement in Swinbrook. He'd lived and worked in the parish of Swinbrook. But in 1807, he must have been employed in the parish of Tainton, the neighbouring parish. Um, and it's there that he met and married his wife, Anne. Uh, Anne Eels, she was. Um, by marrying James, she acquired his parish of legal settlement. She'd been born in Tainton, and until she married him, her legal place of settlement was in Tainton. By marrying him, she acquired her husband's place of settlement. And unfortunately, James must have been thrown out of work and was unemployed. Um, and somebody actually reported him to the overseers, and the overseers hauled him before the magistrates. And they questioned him. Uh, unfortunately, the, um, the details of that questioning, the little potted biography that you can sometimes get on individuals um, to prove their place of legal settlement, hasn't survived for James. But the magistrates obviously decided that his legal place of settlement was his previous parish of employment, which was Swinbrook. And so he was removed, and this is the order removing him from Tainton to Swinbrook. And Anne had to go with him, I and mean, she would have done anyway as his wife, but she'd lost her legal right to stay in Tainton um, by marrying. So they were both removed to Swinbrook, and they actually lived in Swinbrook for the rest of their lives. Um, but you can find out a little bit more about individuals. As I say, the examination of him, the little potted biography, hasn't survived. And the report of why he was unemployed or his actual circumstances hasn't survived. Um, but he obviously um, was not in work. Rather than actually become a burden, I don't think he'd even actually asked for poor relief in Tainton. But rather than become a burden on the poor rates, the overseers had immediately decided that they didn't want him to remain in the parish. They weren't going to provide for him. It wasn't his legal place of settlement. They'll get that confirmed by the magistrates and they'll get him removed to his legal place of settlement. And the overseers of Swinbrook can look after him. Um, so he was removed back to Swinbrook. And he worked on the farms in Swinbrook, uh, on the estates in Swinbrook, which at that time belonged to Lord Reedsdale. And in 1813, he and his neighbour, uh, who were both labourers, were caught stealing wood in one of the woods of Swinbrook. Um, the wood, not only the actual wood itself, but the wood on the ground was the property of Lord Reedsdale. Uh, and they were seen by one of Lord Reedsdale's gamekeepers, who promptly reported them. Um, and they were arrested and hauled before the, um, the court of sessions 
uh, the Epiphany Sessions in January 1814. The jury found that they had a, um, a case to answer because they'd been caught stealing a quantity of rough wood to whip three branches of an elm tree of the value of two shillings. Now, whether they'd done that deliberately or not, um, realising that they were committing a crime, they probably did, but the fact remains that in 18... I think it was in 1812, only the year before, Swinbrook had been enclosed. The final commons and wastes of the parish had been enclosed. And until that time, all the parishioners of Swinbrook had had a right to collect firewood and fallen wood as a right from the commons and wastes of the manor. So it had only just, within 12 months, become illegal. Um, whether they realised this or not is another matter. They probably did, um, because most working men had a nous as to what was what and what they could get away with and what they couldn't. So they probably did realise that it was no longer legal for them to collect wood from the wastes and from the, from the wood, um, which was now the private property of the, the landowner. But they thought they'd risk it. Unfortunately, they were caught and they were hauled before the quarter sessions. And they were charged. And the record is amongst the Oxfordshire quarter sessions records. Fortunately and wisely, they pleaded guilty. And because they pleaded guilty, they were only sentenced to a month's imprisonment. If they'd tried to get away with it and they'd pleaded innocence, they'd have probably been found guilty and transported. Um, so by pleading, by pleading guilty and probably acting innocent, they were, they were leniently treated and they spent a month in Oxford jail. Um, and again, there are records in the Oxford Journal, the Oxford Quarter Sessions records, and in the Home Office criminal records uh, that we hold in HO27. After a month, they were released and they returned to Swinbrook, where they both lived the rest of their lives. Um, but it looks as though the time spent in Oxford jail uh, was rather detrimental to James's health. And for much of the following year, he was ill and unable to work. And he appears regularly in the overseer's account books for Swinrook. Um, so there's various entries of receiving relief. Um, you'll note that his name, which is quite unusual, Illet or Eilert, um, it's not very common. Um, it never appears in these early account books with the correct spelling or the later spelling that sort of descendants use. Um, it's always down as Hillet, and he appears regularly in the uh, overseer's records being paid. Um, usually every sort of fortnight or every two or three weeks, he'll get a lump sum. Occasionally he'll be paid for a week. Um, so for the first week he gets 10 shillings, and then the second week he gets paid 12 shillings. And then um, he suddenly only gets paid four shillings for two weeks. Uh, and then, again, a week later, he gets another 12 shillings. He has his wife, Anne, and he has a family by this stage, so the overseers are not just paying for him and his ill health, they're also paying to support his wife and children. Um, he seems to recover, um, and he goes back to work at Christmas. Maybe he finds employment, but then... In the new year, he's again playing, paying, uh, sorry, claiming poor relief to supplement his wages. And again, you get continual entries. Um, and then in June, there's a short period 
where he's no longer being supported by the overseers. Presumably he's finding work, it's harvest time, haymaking and then the harvest, and he doesn't claim relief, presumably because he's fit enough to work and he's finding employment. Um, but then the payments begin again, and he actually appears in the overseer's records for year after year, into the 1820s, 1830s. Um, and he appears in the later census returns. Uh, and William ba Bayliss, who he served time in prison with, appears in the 1851 and 1841 censuses with him. They're almost next-door neighbours, next-door but one. You could pursue this in the records of the New, new Poor Law after 1834 and the Poor Law Amendment Act. Um, but then the records are really based on the workhouse and the Poor Law Union uh, and the records of the uh, Board of Guardians for the Poor Law Union and the relieving officer for the union. Um, but you've got from 1834 the Poor Law Unions managed by elected boards of guardians. Um, sort of overseen by the Poor Law Commission and the commissioners based in London. And there is correspondence between the Poor Law Unions and the commissioners in London. And the assistant commissioners, rather than commissioners, actually deal with the Poor Law Unions on a day-to-day -day basis. They later replace the Poor Law Commission by the Poor Law Board and then the Local Government Board and then the Ministry of Health. But surviving records held in the National Archives are in the Ministry of Health series and MH12, the main series of original correspondence, is the most useful. Now the guardians will set the poor rate for each parish rather than the overseers working with the vestry at parish level um, and it's based on the numbers of paupers in each parish until the Union Chargeability Act of 1865 when each parish ba paid based on its rateable value. Um, and there are relieving officers that actually provide the outdoor relief. After 1834, workhouses are built and there is a switch from outdoor relief to indoor relief. But this doesn't happen overnight. And in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, you still get people being provided with outdoor relief without the need to go into the workhouse. And the parish overseers at local level, at parish level, will still collect the poor rates. But it's the relieving officers that will decide on whether people need to be admitted to the workhouse or whether they can still relieve, receive outdoor relief. And they will make the cases to the boards of guardians. So it's the records of the relieving officers and the boards of guardians minutes where you can find details of individual circumstances. And then you also get the workhouse and district medical officers uh, who are responsible for examining the sick within the workhouse and also within the district of the poor law union. And the workhouses replace the parish workhouses or parish poorhouses um, to provide indoor relief. But as I say, this doesn't happen overnight and outdoor relief does continue after 1834. Now, the sort of records you can find relating to the poor law unions are going to be held in the county record offices. So you've got the Board of Guardians minute books, which record individual cases, ledger and account books, the master and matron's journal, the master and matron of the workhouse. These will include details of individual cases of individual paupers or, or families, groups of, um, of, of families, uh, husband, wife and children. 
sometimes even grand, um, grandparents um, um, and extended family members. You've also got order books um, for details of removals because the settlement system still continues. But instead of the parish being the place of your legal settlement, the poor law union is your place of legal settlement. But people are still removed from one poor law union to another, so they're still examined and removal orders can still be issued. You've got the admission and discharge records of people admitted to the workhouses and then um, discharge registers for when they leave the workhouse and find employment. You also get baptismal records, occasionally birth and death records and burial registers where there's a burial ground attached to the workhouse and creed registers that give details of religious denominations of inmates and of children being baptised. You also get registers of lunatics and the feeble-minded and registers of children, orphans, boarded out and punishment books and leave of absence registers where people are allowed to leave the workhouse in order to try and find employment. And then the outdoor relief payment books. Now not everything will survive for every poor law union. Again, it's a matter of luck. And in some cases, most of the records of the poor law union have been destroyed for various circumstances. Some records were just got rid of in 1930 when the poor law system was replaced um, by um, the county boroughs and, and county councils looking after um, uh, the workhouses which replaced or became poor law institutions and infirmaries, medical infirmaries. Records were destroyed. Records went for scrap during the, for, for, for waste during the Second World War. So again, it's very much a matter of luck what's actually survived on a union-by-union union basis within a county. Also, you've got vaccination registers. They're also a possibility that might survive amongst the union <coughs> records. Central records held in the National Archives, the most important ones are the correspondence between the poor law unions and the assistant commissioners in London. And those are in MH12, uh, the correspondence, which is arranged by county and then by poor law union. Um, Slowly, some of these records are being made available online or the descriptions are being improved uh, for the individual volumes. And you can search some of these records, not all by any means, because only a tiny proportion at the moment are searchable online, but some of the unions can be searched by name and by place. There are other records as well, um, not so useful for naming individuals, but sometimes for background information. Records of the assistant commissioners and inspectors in MH12. Um, the subject registers, which can be used as indexes to get into the correspondence in MH33. Um, and the assistant commissioners correspondence in MH32, which can be used in conjunction with the correspondence in MH12. And you've also got registers of paid officers, individuals that might have held office within the poor law union, arranged alphabetically by union. And the formal minute books as well, and rough minute books. These aren't so useful. The most important ones are the, the, the correspondence in MH12 and the assistant commissioner's correspondence in MH32. But that only survives for the early period. 
This is just an example of correspondence from MH12 for Exeter Poor Law Union. Um, and this is a statement. This is like uh, an examination that would have been conducted before the magistrates um, in the, in before 1834, the overseers of the parish would have taken somebody before the magistrates and they would have had to ex explain why they had a right of settlement in that particular parish. In this case, um, this is an examination of a pauper in Exeter workhouse. Born in 1811, this statement's made in 1860 when he's in the workhouse, presumably confirming his right of settlement, whether it's in Exeter or whether he should be removed to his actual parish of birth. And you can find details of individual cases that are referred from the local boards of guardians to the assistant commissioners in London. So although you won't find details of inmates of, of workhouses, all the people in a workhouse, amongst the records held in the National Archives, it's certainly worth looking through the correspondence um, of the particular poor law union um, that your ancestors might have lived in. And if they appear in the workhouse or they worked, uh, had to go into the workhouse, then it's worth using these records in conjunction with the records of the boards of guardians and the workhouse itself. There's also Home Office correspondence, county correspondence and records of disturbances during the Napoleonic Wars and after the Napoleonic Wars during the 1820s and the period of depression in the 1820s and 1830s. Um, reports from magistrates in counties to the Home Office, which are very useful for background information on this period. Um, you can find out what the situation is like, what the social and economic situation is like in the county where your ancestors lived. So there are records of disturbances, correspondence for disturbances in HO40 and entry books in HO41. Um, there's the domestic correspondence in HO42 and later correspondence in HO44 and counties correspondence in HO52 which is particularly useful for the 1820s and 1830s when there are disturbances, um, agricultural disturbances and outrages and the swing riots at the end of the 1820s. There's also odd things that we hold in the National Archives, parish acreage returns in 18, that were made in 1801 um, in conjunction with the, the first census. These actually record the crops growing um, in a particular parish at that date. They're usually filled out by the clergyman, by the parish priest. Sometimes they'll go into detail, sometimes they won't. They'll just give you a list of what crop acreages there are. Other clergymen will go into more detail and will actually um, give you details of the soil condition and the farming conditions. Um, so again, it's a matter of luck what survived for the county and for the parish. But occasionally you can come across little gems, little nuggets of information. And you've got the clergyman's returns for the 1831 census. These are statistical returns. They don't list individuals. Um, they give you some background information on the parish as it is in 1831. And those are in the Home Office series HO71. Now, manor and estate administration. This is just a rough diagram showing the sort of the layout very roughly and in very general terms of... Um, land administration. 
You've got the landowners at the top. These can be aristocrats or landed gentry. They're the people that actually own the land. So they own the estates. They own the farms. They're the ones that are lords of the manors. Although some gentry can actually lease land from bigger landowners. So they could be the the main employer in a parish, but they're not necessarily the landowner. They actually rent the manor house from a, a, the, the lord of the manor, who is a bigger landowner. But the landowners actually own the property. They own the land. And then most of the farms in most parishes are actually owned by tenant farmers. So labourers are usually employed by tenant farmers um, who don't own their own farms. Um, the tenant farmers then employ their farm servants, their contract labour uh, on an annual basis, and the day labour, the landless labourers on a daily basis for specific tasks like harvest, like threshing, um, maybe drainage and ditching. How do you find a landowner? Because most of the records that survive where you're going to be able to trace the landless labourers and the working people are through the records that survive that were created by the landowners. To find a landowner, some of the more useful series to use, um, one which we held in the National Archives, are the land tax assessments for 1798 in the series IR23, arranged by county and then by, arranged by parish and township. These will list all the landowners in the parish and then the principal tenants of those landowners. Um, they, um, they only cover 1798, although having said that, a few odd returns for some counties will actually cover 1799 as well. And I've actually found the odd return in some county volumes, which should be 1798, actually 1800 as well. Um, but for most um, counties, they, we've just got them for 1798 when the return was made centrally. There's just a few odd returns that were made the year after. Uh, and in 1800. But there are other land tax ret uh, returns, assessments that survive, usually from 1782 up to 1832, and those can be found in county record offices. So you've, if you've got ancestors living in a particular parish in the 1820s, 30s, you can use the land tax assessments to find out who the landowners are and who the principal tenants of those landowners are, i.e. the people that are going to employ the working class, the labourers. You've also got the tithe apportionments and the tithe maps from 1836 or just after. Um, those you're probably aware of in IR29 and IR30. The, the county and parish copies will be in county record offices, listing all the landowners and occupiers at a particular date when the, um, when the tithes were commuted to a uh, uh, a tithe rent charge. You've, for later periods, you've got the parliamentary return of landowners in 1872-73 amongst the parliamentary papers, which list all the landowners throughout England and Wales in 1872-73. And even later, you've got the valuation office field books in IR58 and the valuation maps from um, 19, 1910. Uh, and those will tell you who landowners are at that particular date. Once you've found out who landowners are, you can then look for records, either of the estates, estate papers, or manorial records, because in most cases, landowners will also be the lords of the manor. 
Um, as I said, sometimes um, you'll find the principal sort of employer in a parish isn't actually the landowner or the lord of the manor. They just rent the manor house from an even bigger um, landlord, a landowner, uh, a duke or an earl or a marquis, something like that, um, who have vast estates across the country. Um, so not necessarily the most sort of important person in the parish actually is the landowner and the lord of the manor. Now, manor and estate records. Manors can cover a parish, but large parishes can contain several manors, and a manor can actually cross a parish boundary. It's actually a, an estate, and a personal estate run with an administration, and its records are what we call the manorial uh, records. There are manorial courts, there's usually two basic ones, the court leet and view of Frank Pledge, that deals with the legal aspects of the manor and the customs of the manor, and the court baron that actually deals with the tenure, the customary tenure, the copyhold tenure of the manorial land holdings. So a manor is a landed estate and several manors can be owned by land, one landowner forming a large estate across several parishes or across several counties. Now a manor would be run by a lord's bailiff or a steward and a large uh, estate would be run by a steward from a state, an estate office. Um, now, manorial records, the records of the court leet and view of Frank Pledge and the court baron records will only normally refer to tenants of the manor, either the freeholders or copyholders, the customary tenants, and not to the landless labourers. They're the ones that will sublet property within the manor. But you can find details of labourers where they encroach on, on the waste or the commons, um, if they have any animals, if they sort of let them stray on the common fields, um, or if they commit any offences against the customs of the manor, uh, and then they might appear in the records of the court leet and view of Frank Pledge. And you should look for manor and estate records by consulting the Manorial Documents Register, the National Register of Archives, Access to Archives, and the County Record Office catalogues. Now, many County Record Office catalogues you can actually access via the National Register of Archives or Access to Archives. So many County Record Office catalogues are now available online. The quality of the listing does vary, so sometimes you might not be able to tell from a catalogue what, what actually survives amongst the records. Now the Manorial Documents Register is available uh, on the National Archives webpage, but only certain counties are available to search online at the moment, and they're listed on the webpage. Um, the rest of England and Wales, you need, uh, sorry, Wales is, all of Wales is included. Those English um, parishes that are not uh, covered, um, you need to access by consulting the Manorial Documents Register in the Map and Large Document Room here at Kew. But that will tell you what manners were, were existed in a particular parish and then where records of those manorial courts can be found. You can also access and search the National Register of Archives via the website. You can search by personal name of individuals, so individual families, but then you can search for landowners and tenant farmers. You can search by place name, so you can search by the name of the parish, the name of the township, name of the manor, 
names of individuals. You can search by names of farms as well to see if any farm records survive that are included in the National Register of Archives. This is an example of a search that I did for the Brook family of Houghton Hall, which is in Shropshire, in Shifnal in Shropshire. Um, and this relates to a collection of family papers. Um, this family acquired certain estates in Shropshire and certain manors and the manorial records that went with those estates and manors. Um, when they bought properties, um, they, then, they didn't necessarily just keep the records or create the records from that date onwards. They often inherited the records of the previous lord of the manor. So if you're looking for estate papers in the 18th century and the manor was bought in 1810 by somebody else, you might find that you need to look in the records of that family that bought the manor in 1810, even though you're looking for the records from the 18th century and the family that owned the manor in the 18th century, because those records will have been passed on with the sale of the property. And this is just an example taken from that collection of Brook papers um, from the Shropshire Archives catalogue, the collection 1681. And there's all sorts of things relating to particular manner of Sutton, Maddock and Brockton. So there's, there's records of property, messages and lands, um, conveyances, various deeds. But amongst the records are the surviving records of the earlier manorial courts. So you've got... Sutton Manor presentments, which are actually presenting individuals that have committed misdemeanours uh, before the manorial court. Um, and it doesn't actually explain from the description, but these records, 1681-13-1, are actually records of the manorial courts. They're not just the presentments. They're the records of the manorial court. Not particularly detailed in some cases, because by the 19th century the manorial system is breaking down, but they do include details of individuals and what is happening and who is being brought before the manorial court. But you wouldn't realise how much information you can find from the simple description in the catalogue. And you've got other descriptions of deeds. Suit roll for the manor of Sutton Maddock. That lists all the tenants, both the freehold tenants and the copyhold and leasehold tenants of the manor. So there's a suit roll for 1808, a suit roll for 1820, uh, another one for 1816. So amongst these collections of family papers, you can find records of manorial courts that will lead you possibly to further records, details of tenants. You can then search for their records, see if records of farms, individual farms survive, journal and account books of individuals may have survived. So farm records may survive amongst manorial and estate papers. Um, they're sometimes deposited by solicitors, family solicitors, farmers' solicitors, or um, uh, estate owners' um, legal business will be conducted by solicitors and they will accumulate the estate and family papers, which will then get deposited in the county record office. So a lot of material relating to land ownership and administration can be found amongst solicitors' records as well as family and estate papers in county record offices. Um, the Museum of uh, English Rural Life at the University of Reading has an archival collection including records of farms and farm account books and diaries of farmers. 
Um, the British Library manuscript collection is worth searching for records of farmers and landowners that have kept account books and diaries. And you can do personal and place name searches. Again, you can do that on the National Register of Archives, Access to Archives and County Record Office online catalogues. That's the home page for the Museum of English Rural Life. Well, sorry, it's not the home page, but the archival page. And you can do a, a search of the collections in there and look for individual farms in counties across the country. Um, and farmers' journals may survive and account books. An example of which is this farm account book from George Bruffle, who was a tenant farmer in the parish of Sutton Maddock. Uh, the parish I've referred to, and this is held in Shropshire Archives. It's held separately. It's not part of an estate collection or um, the Lords of the Manors, the family estate papers of the Lords of the Manor. This was actually kept by a tenant farmer and actually passed through his family from father and son. Um, it was kept at the turn of the 18th century, um, and the volume actually passed through the family and was lent to the then Shropshire Local Studies Library um, by the Acton Scott Farm Museum, who got it from a descendant of George Bruffle, Canon John Bruffle, um, who placed it on temporary loan in 1983. And Shropshire Archives hold a photocopy of this account book. And these are just a selection of entries for one particular labourer, Richard Ray, who's who also owns, has, has a, 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 a small holding, but is a labourer and is described as a labourer and is basically a day labourer hired by farmers. But he seems to do a lot of work on a regular basis for this particular tenant farmer who is the main sort of farmer. That he holds um, the, the main farm in Sutton Maddock. And there are entries, just basic entries of employment, uh, and payments to him and other labourers of amounts for doing various tasks and work on the farm. So there's a whole series of, of payments. Payments for thrashing, for threshing the corn after the harvest through the winter months. Um, this is before the mechanical threshing machines are actually used. Um, so there are payments to Richard Ray for actually threshing corn. Um, payments to him and other fellow workers for guttering, um, doing drainage guttering in the fields, um, to actually drain the fields. So digging ditches and putting gutters in um, to drain the fields during the, the winter and the, um, the spring. Again, guttering roots in, in a liso in a field. And these are just a few examples. They're not all the entries for Richard Ray by any means. You've got here payments for him and Edward Oliver and Sam Walters for mowing 18 acres of clover at 18 pence an acre and 14 of grass at 20 pence. Richard Ray for work, £2.7 shillings, and for his girl, 12, 12 shillings and 9 pence. I think that's his daughter, his eldest daughter, who's about 14 at the time. Again, paid to Richard Ray in full and his girl £1.14 shillings and sixpence. A load of coals for R. Ray, £1.1 £1 shilling and tuppence. This is the farmer, George Bruffle, actually paying, well, sorry, providing, buying coals and providing coal for one of his workers throughout the winter months to provide fuel to keep him warm 
Um, and there are other examples of him buying coals or paying for coals for his other workers as well. Agreed with F. Ray, who's a son of R. Ray, Francis Ray is the son of Richard Ray, to have 7p or g a shilling. This is actually, in the account book, he's actually paying Francis to be employed by him. And he hasn't quite decided whether he's going to pay him £7 or 7 guineas for the following year. And he gets a shilling, and the shilling is the token contract that binds Francis Ray for the next 12 months to work uh, for George Bruffle. Unfortunately, it doesn't actually say what he's being employed to do for the next 12 months. Um, but you always find in this account book details of the servants he is engaging, the farm servants, every March, early April for the coming year. So the women that are going to be employed in the dairy, the women that are going to be employed in the household, in the farmhouse. Uh, and the men, he employs his carter, his wagoner, um, for the next 12 months. And he agrees the amount he's going to pay them and he gives them the token for binding the contract. Another entry for his father, Francis's father, Richard Ray, for lime spreading and thrashing. Um, other payments, one year later from uh, March 1802, 30th of April 1803, um, Josh Billingsley gets five shillings and sixpence. F. Ray gets his wages and he's actually decided to pay him in guineas rather than pounds. So he gets seven pounds, seven shillings, plus the five and sixpence for uh, Billingsley is uh, seven pounds, 12 shillings and sixpence paid out on the 30th of April. I think he's a bit late on uh, actually paying the, the wages um, at the end of April, but never mind. Um, and as well as these entries, uh, for a particular individual and their family, you can actually find out what's going on at the farm during the course of the year. You can see what's going on the farm year, doing the draining and the drainage ditches in the, in the winter. Um, the mowing and the harvesting during the summer and then the thrashing of the corn and the barley in the autumn and through the winter. Gifts to his workers of coals and fuel for the winter. And you can, pick up, uh, you can paint a picture, a portrait of the economic doings and social context and economic context of that farm over a number of years because of this particular account book. And as I say, these are just a few examples. They're not all the examples by any means for one individual. There's a number of miscellaneous published sources that you could go for. If you're very unlucky and hardly any records survive for your parish, um, you can try and build up a picture by looking at other records of the agriculture and the economics of the parish or the county where ancestors come from. So you've got the Victoria County Histories of England, which have individual parish histories. And most county history series will have a volume or a couple of volumes on the economic and social history of the county. And there's usually a volume, uh, sorry, a chapter or chapters, sometimes a volume for some counties, on the agriculture of that county. You've also got the reports of the... Um, the Board of Agri to the Board of Agriculture, the series of general views of the agriculture in each county, published by various authors between the 1790s and uh, uh, the Napoleonic War period and just after. In some cases, you'll usually find two reports for each county, some 10 or 15 years apart. So maybe one in the 1790s, one at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. 
Um, these general views of the agriculture of the county of Shropshire or the county of Oxfordshire um, have been published um, and a whole series of facsimiles were produced in the 1960s. So many of these can be got in county record offices or even in reference libraries. And they'll give you portraits of the agricultural conditions and the improvements that the farmers are making in the counties at the time of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. You've got later parliamentary reports and royal commissions on the employment of children and young people and women in agriculture and the Royal Commission on Labour. And you can sometimes find individual reports, maybe of ancestors, if not of ancestors, people that live in the locality or even the parish where your, your ancestors might come from, which will paint a picture of social and economic conditions at a particular date in that area. And the British Agricultural History Society publishes the Agricultural History Review, which contains articles, reviews and bibliographies which are useful for finding other source material locally. And many counties have archaeological or history societies dating from the late 19th century, whose volumes will contain useful articles and material on social and economic uh, uh, circumstances and even individual parish histories or references to um, events happening in uh, individual parishes or the economic uh, situation in individual parishes. And they'll point you to other original source material. And then you've got county and parish his histories and most county record offices now will publish bibliographies um, or county reference libraries will publish bibliographies of useful books relating to the social and economic and political history of a county and individual published parish histories. There's also newspapers as well as um, provincial newspapers, and I mentioned the Oxford Journal um, for the, uh, the case of uh, James Illett and William Bayliss. You've got things like the um, union newspapers, the National Agricultural Labourers Union newspapers. There's the English Labourer, uh, the English Labourers Chronicle, Labourers Union Chronicle, and the National Agricultural Labourers Chronicle and Industrial Review from the period of the 1870s when Joseph Arch was forming the Agricultural Labourers Union. And you've got the Land Worker from 1919 for the 20th century. Further reading, a very useful Society of Genealogists guide by Ian Waller, my ancestor was an agricultural labourer. It's very useful for background material and ideas for sources. Uh, and covers a lot of the things that I've covered sort of briefly this afternoon. Um, Tate's Parish Chest is worth consulting for the sorts of records that should survive, if you're lucky, for each parish. Um, John West's Village Records, again, will give you examples of the types of records that should survive for a parish. Um, the McLaughlin Guide, Annals of the Poor, dealing with the Poor Law Union and the Poor Law and Poor Law Documents Before 1834 by Anne Cole, and the Gibson Guides on the Poor Law Unions and where to find records of Poor Law Unions from 1834 onwards. And there's a couple of general books on farm workers. There's a number of others that you can look at for background material. Um, very useful book by Hasback on the history of the English agricultural labourer. You've got the Hammond, the village labourer, 1760 to 1832, which is very good on background relating to the poor law 
at that time and the economic depression and the the riots in the 18, late 1820s, the swing riots and the economic riots in 1829, 1830. Um, there's a copy of that in the um, TNA library and good reference libraries should have copies as well. And there's Henry Stevens, The Book of the Farm by Blackwood, uh, which is a contemporary book on farming and farming methods in the mid-19th century. I don't know whether you saw that, um, uh, I think it was... Channel 4, was it, programme on the Victorian farm? Um, they often referred to Henry Stevens' The Book of the Farm in that, uh, in that book, uh, sorry, in that television series. So there's a number of sources that you can actually refer to and use for background material, uh, and then it's a question of consulting records held in, in locally in county record offices, supplemented by material held nationally, either in the National Archives or in the Museum of English Rural Life or the British Library. This event was recorded live on the 1st of July 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.